Johnny Carson, he really invented late night for the most part. He nailed it, the absolute formula for a successful late night show. One thing that I really pushed was getting The Daily Show online. Where are we on Facebook? Where are we on Instagram? Where are we on Twitter? I'm broadcasting to you right now from my garage at home. I can categorically say this is the first time I've ever done work in my garage. Uh, and I'm here on my own with just these three cameras. I can show you. Those voices belong to performers from different eras of the uniquely American television genre called late night television. The first was Byron Allen, a stand-up who got his big show business break with Johnny Carson. Carson was, of course, the longest serving host of the late night genre's franchise program, NBC's Tonight Show. Next, we heard from Trevor Noah, the current host of what is now another long running late night enterprise, The Daily Show on Comedy Central. And the third voice belongs to James Corden, host of The Late Late Show on CBS. Like his late night colleagues, James was compelled to take his show into quarantine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Even in the presence of garage-like items, like stored luggage and a foosball table, James was wearing a suit and tie, facing cameras, and addressing his viewers from behind a desk. I'm Bill Carter, and this is Behind the Desk, the story of late night. In this edition... We're going to talk about one enduring basic of the late night genre, the format. The desk. Yeah. The desk is just, it's the simplest one. Here's Andy Richter from The Conan Show. A, it seems like the host needs some protection, so, you know, some yes. e- some elevation. A barrier in yes, some ways. Some kind of yeah. like, some, like, you know, like a judge's, you know, <laughs> what I don't even know. What do you call that with the judge sits behind? Yeah. The bench. You, you know. may approach the bench. Yes. So yeah. it's like it gives them, it lends them a little bit of implied authority. status and authority yeah. just from a visual standpoint. You look at somebody sitting in a chair and somebody sitting at a desk, it looks like a job interview. The desk was there from the start, both as an audience cue, oh, this is one of those kinds of shows, like today's show, and also for practical reasons. A host needed a desk as a place where he could keep his notes and his water or his coffee. In Johnny Carson's case, also his ashtray. The band always serves a useful function because they keep the audience juiced during the commercials, but they also send a signal to the audience. You're really watching a big entertainment show here. Many of the comic talents who have made legends of themselves in late night have put a personal stamp on the look, the length, and the logistics of a late-night show. Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show and put the half-hour format firmly on the map when he turned his show into a satirical newscast. Stephen Colbert upped the ante by making his Colbert Rapport the longest-running sketch in television history. Arsenio Hall turned his into a nightly party for the hip and the wannabe hip. And David Letterman, more than anyone else, picked at the format's parts, turned them inside out, held them up to ridicule, then put them all back in place, and went on with the show. Why wouldn't he? It works. It always has. 
from the night it was first put in place by the first legend in the line, Steve Allen, working off a bunch of scribbled notes on a legal yellow pad. But he was sitting behind a desk when he did, and he told everyone he would be talking to guests and having a bit of fun deep into the night. The Hudson, and we especially selected us for this very late show because this theater's, uh, oh, I think it sleeps about 800 people. Just imagine a time machine. It transports a Johnny Carson fan from 1963 to today. He turns on his TV at about 11.35 p.m. He might be stunned by seeing a garage instead of a studio, and by some of the language he's hearing, and a lot of the music, but he would surely recognize the environment. Oh, sure, I know where I am. This guy in the suit and tie tells some jokes, and then he talks to some movie stars. It's late-night TV. The format for late-night television takes in a lot of territory. It's not just parts of a structure, a stage, a desk, some curtains. It's also all the creative elements that make up a show. The monologue jokes, the comedy sketches, the anecdotes from celebrity guests. Those elements turn out to be highly flexible, encompassing both the traditional nightclub approach of a Johnny Carson to the late night show made up of limitations imposed by working under quarantine, like Trevor Noah, turning The Daily Show into the daily social distancing show. Hey, everybody. Trevor Noah here. It's now day eight of being locked in the house, a.k.a. social distancing. Oh, and here's a fun tip I learned today. Your phone doesn't just do Instagram. It can also make phone calls. Pretty neat. Hashtag life hack. But first, we need to talk about The Roots. Not Jimmy Fallon's great band, but the source of all the creativity in Late Night, the first Tonight Show starring Steve Allen. Just joyous time-killing, complete anarchy, and it's the 50s. Robert Smigel, the first head writer for Conan O'Brien, was among many who recognized the inspired ideas of Steve Allen and their lasting influence. Allen was a high-energy talent, and he had to be as did his immediate successor, Jack Parr, and then Johnny Carson. Tonight was originally a 90-minute show, but that was for everybody outside New York City. In the city, it ran one hour and 45 minutes. That's because in the 1950s, local late newscasts were only 15 minutes long. Every night, Alan had to do a separate 15-minute version of Tonight just for viewers in New York. That tradition, or imposition, continued through the early Johnny Carson years. Because the show was broadcast live from New York, bookings could be a real challenge. There were fewer stars in New York than in Hollywood, and they had to be willing to stay up late and to talk a lot. I'll tell you a story about Jay Leno. Yeah. Jay and me um, watching The Tonight Show with Johnny before Jay started in 92. Jimmy Brogan was in charge of Jay's monologue when the show had only an hour to fill. And Jay has a copy of the 90-minute version, or actually, it was an hour and 45 
Jay had an early, early version. And every guest is on for three and four segments. They're on forever. And the last guest is an author. You know, they've used all the stars. And an author is on for like three segments, just a tedious, long thing. And Johnny says to him at the end, Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. I wish we had more time. <laughs> he's he's on an hour and 45 minutes and talked to, you know, a, the dullest author in the world <laughs> for 20 minutes. Even at just an hour, a late night show had an undeniable attraction for the networks. It's a relatively inexpensive way to fill an hour of broadcast TV or any kind of TV. Tonight quickly became the most profitable show on television because it delivered hundreds of ad minutes a week and production costs were, in a word, cheap. Jules Green is not a very familiar name in the history of late night television, but he made a hugely significant contribution. Jules was Steve Allen's producer and he made a crucial decision in 1954. No matter how big the stars might be, they would never be paid any more than any other guest on The Tonight Show. Frank Sinatra or a ventriloquist, they got the same union scale. In 1954, that was $265.50. Keeping the talent costs down meant the weekly budget could be fixed and managed easily. Allen got about $3,500 a week. He was the big ticket. The entire weekly budget came in at about $11,000 a week. The network made millions. Eventually, under Carson, it made hundreds of millions. The Tonight Show's founding father, Sylvester Pat Weaver, started out thinking this new creation would be something like his previous stroke of genius, The Today Show. Weaver who was also the father of the well-known actress Sigourney Weaver, really wanted to include the same elements that he had invented for the Today Show, which meant breaks in the show for news, even some weather and sports. Allen wrote a memo disdaining all that. He intended to do a show that could induce laughter at any moment. But Allen did not do a traditional monologue. He was not a stand-up. His humor was sketch and stunt-oriented. Jack Parr, who followed Allen, installed the monologue as a nightly feature, and Carson raised it to a national ritual. Dick Cavett, who worked for both those hosts, remembered how they each distinguished their work on a monologue. Jack liked warm stories and jokes. Johnny was more of a really, almost like a nightclub stand-up comic in the monologue. Hilariously... Funny when a joke bombed. He always had something good to say. He was talking about the deficit, and the president says the deficit wasn't his fault. <laughs> a beeper went off in the audience. <laughs> See if you can call my writers on that damn thing. <laughs> I know you're, you know you're not doing well when a guy calls for the paramedics during the monologue. <laughs> Anybody remember what I was talking about? Aside from the monologue, it really was Carson who formalized the structure of the late-night show in a way that de-emphasized its roots in the talk show genre. Comedy was the reason to tune in. Talk was the reason you might stick around. 
he did a nightly half-hour comedy show, and that changed the game. Byron Allen broke out as a stand-up in an appearance on Carson's show, and he later broke out as an entrepreneur with interests all over TV, including owning the Weather Channel. Byron studied Carson up close from a very young age when he would greet the star in the parking lot at the Burbank Studios where his mom worked. So the celebrities that came on in the last half hour was like, eh, that was just icing on the cake. But he nailed it. He invented the, the, the absolute formula for a successful late night show and how we watch and consume television today. He made it better. You know, he took the news, good or bad, ups and downs, and he made it better. And he made you feel better about your day and made you feel more optimistic about tomorrow. It was an all-encompassing atmosphere, becoming a show designed to end your day, stimulated and entertained. And it was produced that way, and it was designed that way. You know, how bright the studio was, how they put this almost circus-like curtain behind you with all the multicolors, you know, Doc Severinsen and the big band. It, it, you know, it is the, it is, it's about as perfect as you can get to producing a nightly television show. You know, when you had The Tonight Show on, I don't care who you were or where you were, you didn't feel alone. And if you don't steer, if you don't step away from that formula, you're gonna be okay. Comedy, the host behind the desk, the guests, the music. When all these conventions were working, you might actually feel like staying up even later, which opened the door to new ideas in late night. There was something about what David Letterman was doing, which was taking what Johnny Carson was doing, but breaking it down. Coming up, David Letterman performs radical surgery on late night television, and the patient comes out good as new. That and more after a short break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. David Letterman got his first shot in late night as a stand-up on The Carson Tonight Show. Just three appearances with Carson, 
and he was a guest host. An NBC deal followed. Dave made a somewhat bizarre detour into daytime, where he failed in the ratings, but scored as a comedic force. When the opportunity opened up that he could have his own late-night show in the hour after Carson, Letterman had a raft of ideas about what he wanted to do. What Dave Letterman did was take the talk show format, leave it completely as it is, and then take every single piece of it apart and play with it like a monkey playing with a ball. (laughs) Even more important, Dave had a partner. Of course, there were stupid pet tricks, which was invented by my buddy Meryl Marco, and she should be enshrined in some sort of national crypt. Like so many others who worked on the early Letterman shows, Madeline Smithberg gives enormous credit to the genius of that partner, Meryl Marco. Their show, called Late Night, would have been totally new anyway because of Merrill's and Dave's ideas. But Carson's production company had laid down some rules and restrictions. Marco saw these as no limitation at all. They were going to reinvent Late Night anyway. Here is Merrill Marco. The truth is that um, when we went to the Late Night show, we were given certain restrictions. You couldn't do an opening monologue. He wanted to keep that for himself. And you couldn't uh, play stump the band. And you couldn't have a sidekick like Ed McMahon come sit down with you and schmooze. And that was it. And I just remember thinking, that's it? So, like, you mean, that if we can't do those two, three things, we can do everything else in the world. The whole world is left after that. Dave would still walk out at the top of the show and be funny, but they would call that opening remarks. The band would still play lots of music, but not jazz. Rock music, which four pieces could handle just fine. And the band leader, Paul Schaefer, recruited from Saturday Night Live, was skilled at offhand comedy comments, which he could make just as well from the band area. Merrill and Dave updated Steve Allen's physical stunts. Where Alan had worn tea bags and jumped into a tub of water, Dave wore a suit covered in Rice Krispies and jumped into a bowl of milk so he could snap, crackle, and pop. Many of the breakthrough bits invented by Marco or introduced later by Letterman, like his famous top ten list, became enduring cultural touchstones, especially among practitioners in late night. As a child, I used to go to the library and my favorite book to take out over and over and over again was David Letterman's Top Ten List. That's Desus Nice, co-host of Showtime's Desus and Mero. Late at night, we'd stay up just to watch the David Letterman Top Ten and then we'd go to bed because we didn't know who the guests were. You know, they'd have like some fancy actor or actress. It's a movie we, we, have, no, we have no point of reference here, but the Top Ten jokes, boom, we got that. And here now with the number one thing I've always wanted to say to Dave, my mom. Mom? You're adopted. The stamp of Merrill Marco's creativity was all over the Letterman show, in signature bits like Stupid Petrix, but also in those taped out-of-the-studio segments. Once, she had them take a trip to a store called Just Bulbs, which only sold light bulbs. Dave went in and inquired about a lamp. Merrill pioneered a kind of comedy 
that she called found humor. Madeline Smithberg. Sometimes it was the simplest ideas, like dropping things off. You would go on top of a building and just throw things off. It's the type of thing you always wanted to do. They put a camera on a monkey and let the monkey shoot the show that day. Just brilliant. All of this was accomplished without undoing any brick-and-mortar element of the late-night format. Dave still opened with some amusing greetings to the audience, sat behind a desk, and brought on guests, even though many were weirder than anyone had ever seen on Carson. Then Dave closed with the music act, though that was usually a rock band that Dave invited to blow the roof off the dump. Almost like he bought a house and then began renovating the house and shooting the process of renovating the house and in the process took the entire house apart and then put it back together. And when it came out, it was like the mousetrap game. Yes, they did a show where everybody on camera had a British accent dubbed in and one where the camera rotated 360 degrees throughout. But there were still guests sitting on the couch. Usually... Once they did a show completely from an airplane in mid-flight. And then there was the show with Carly Simon. Carly Simon was booked on the show, and uh, she had sort of very famous stage fright. So in order to appease her, the writers came up with, we did uh, doing the show from a hotel room, and the closet was to be the, the green room where the guests would be waiting. And in that closet was Carly Simon... Hunter S. Thompson, and my guest, the podiatrist who collected celebrity shoes, but the most famous celebrity shoes that he had, the cornerstone of his collection, were Jamie Farr from MASH. Jamie Farr may have had lovely shoes because his MASH character famously wore women's clothes in a bid to get a psych discharge. But while Jamie Farr surely had a following during his days on MASH, He wasn't quite George Clooney. For Letterman, the comedy was all about the absurdity of an actor like Jamie Farr being the top celebrity in your collection. Carly Simon was clearly a guest Dave respected enough to go to extraordinary creative lengths to build a whole show around her guest appearance. He wasn't always so gracious. He could frighten or even tick off certain celebrities with his uncompromising attitude. That wasn't exactly how Cher memorably described him. She simply called him, on air, an asshole. The whole point of Letterman's deconstruction of a late-night show was to reflect his comic sensibilities while staying basically within the four walls of the late-night foundation. Lorne Michaels had no idea what he was getting into in terms of a host's sensibility when he plucked the completely unknown Conan O'Brien to succeed Letterman at NBC in 1993. Lorne's first intention was to install Conan as the producer of the new show because Conan was a gifted comedy writer and had written for him on Saturday Night Live. But finally, Lorne just shook the dice and rolled them on Conan as host. Robert Smigel went along for the role. So Lorne took the big gamble and and chose Conan to uh, audition. And Conan immediately asked me to be involved in the show. And I had wanted the job. I was trying to weasel my way into Conan's job 
as producer, because I was saying, here's what we could do. We could, you know, borrow the Steve Allen stuff that Letterman didn't borrow, which is, you know, do sketches on late night, which people weren't doing at the time. Now it's commonplace. You know, Jimmy Fallon does it all the time, especially. But but back then it was just desk pieces and Letterman was doing found humor. And I was really excited about doing the opposite of that. And uh, that was my dream to like redefine a late night show, you know, like the whole first year was the year of flailing. It was basically my goal was to do, Lorne Michaels would describe it this way. You define yourself by what you're not. You know, it's a common impulse of someone starting something new, but it'll all go back. And he was kind of right. I mean, I mean, I set down a lot of rules and one will make me sound like the dumbest, worst producer in, in history, which is that I didn't want Conan to do remotes where he was just mouthing off the cuff, you know, going to locations because Letterman was had made it an art form. Letterman's remotes were mostly unscripted, depending on Dave's wit and attitude to generate the laughs. Hello? Yes, uh, give me uh, two number threes. Two number threes. And uh, that should be it then. You know, instead of two number threes, I'm just going to give you a number six. Is that all right? That's fine. All right. I knew Conan was funny enough to pull it off better than other people had attempted. But in my mind, I just felt like, why put him behind the eight ball? Why do anything Letterman does? Let's just do a million different things. Conan has tons of other skills, and we will use all of those. Conan had never even once attempted a stand-up act. So the monologue looked like a good thing to jettison. Conan, let's not do a monologue with jokes. Let's just have you be funny talking about yourself and your life. And then that lasted for like a week because we realized that his life was just panicking about the show. <laughs> and so, you know, that just didn't feel like something that uh, the audience would necessarily enjoy hearing about. I had pictured it like Regis Philbin. You know, last night I went to a charity and Brokaw was there and Brokaw's in the front row and I'm in the third row and not, what's the deal? <laughs> Regis Philbin, of course, was the host of a long-running syndicated morning talk show. A lot of people in the comedy world were big fans of Regis. They all loved his spontaneous bursts of witty outrage. <laughs> but this was uh, not Conan's life. So we went back to jokes. True story. A McDonald's employee has been arrested because he's been selling marijuana at the drive through window. <laughs> not kidding. Yeah. Yeah, the tip-off was every Happy Meal came with a 101 Dalmatians collector's bong. That's the thing about monologue jokes. If they're well-written and your host is appealing, even if he can't deliver a punchline like Johnny Carson, the laughs will be there. Jimmy Kimmel also got distracted at first by the seat-of-the-pants style of Regis Philbin. Just read the New York papers and riff from your chair. I'd come out, I'd go sit behind the desk, and I'd pick up newspaper articles, and I would... I was just winging it. That only confirmed there was only one Regis. Our first monologue, which was on live after the Super Bowl on ABC, I had maybe four jokes written. I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing a, a, a talk show, really. I was just kind of... I was doing a radio show that was televised. That made sense because Jimmy did start in radio. The launch pads for late night hosts are now all over the place. 
especially because of how pervasive social media has become. The steps are different, but it still comes down to being seen or heard somewhere, like online or on a podcast. That happened to be one step for Desus and Mero. Twitter, people loved when we interacted on Twitter. Shout out to our guy Donnie Kwa at Complex. Shot an email, was like, you guys want to do a podcast? After me and Mero Googled what a podcast was, we said, sure, this could be a little extra money for vices on the side. Did a podcast. It was audio only for about eight episodes. Uh, the fans loved it so much. Complex was like, we're going to do a video of this. We found out about the video from Variety magazine before they told us we were doing the video. The... And then the video took off, and from the video, we went to MTV2. It's really like being, like, going through, like, a doctorate program. Like, each step of the way has been, you know, another degree, so to speak, right? So, like, MTV, bachelors. Viceland, masters. Now we're up doing PhD-level stuff up at Showtime. You know what I mean? The metaphor of earning different levels of educational degrees remains dead on because hosting is now, as it ever was, a learning process, as the experience of one leading host proves. Jimmy Kimmel landed his late-night show on ABC in 2003, fresh off a stint on a rather outrageous sketch comedy show called The Man Show. Jimmy was still struggling to smooth out a wide range of his performing skills, including a leftover urge to flout many traditions. He resisted trying to alter his style, clinging to opening each show sitting at the desk rather than trying to do a traditional stand-up opening monologue mid-stage. Finally, Jimmy got some wise advice about changing his style from a smart ABC entertainment executive. Andrea Wong wanted me to stand up at the beginning of the show and, and speak directly to camera. And I was reluctant because I knew there would be a learning curve. I'd not done stand-up before, and I'd never really done anything like that myself. Uh, on The Man Show, Adam Carolla and I would host the show, but we're together, and it was very coordinated. So I, I, was, I was worried that it would be bad, but Andrea said something that made sense to me. She said, if I came over to your house for dinner, would you get up and come to the door and greet me? I said, yes. She said, well, you should do that with people that are watching your show. I don't know why, but that made sense to me. And so I stood up and within 20 seconds of standing on the monologue spot and delivering the material, I knew that it was the right thing to be doing. Of course, get on your feet to greet people. It's polite. Then after a while, you can sit down while everybody snuggles in bed and has a good time. I had seen Jimmy doing stand-up at ABC's Upfront shows for advertisers in New York. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this guy can stand up with anybody and do a monologue. I don't know. You know, the truth of the matter is, you should have told me more of these things that you were thinking. <laughs> when we talk about these, oh, you're like, yeah, and this and that. And I'm like, why didn't you say something, Bill? Okay, here's the thing. I did say something to Jimmy because... In his first attempt at stand-up during ABC's Upfront, he had great material and his delivery was terrific. But the whole time he was on stage, he rocked on his feet like a guy battling the waves on the deck of the Titanic. When he finally did do a stand-up monologue on his show, he was still rocking away. 
I mentioned to him that if he did that every night, the audience would get seasick. He dropped that effect the next night. This was not a brilliant insight, just an observation from a regular viewer. And not the only one I did. In the wake of my book, The Late Shift, about the whole war of the Carson succession, Jay Leno seemed to value my opinion a bit. Jay would call me and run some monologue jokes by me. These were usually ones he thought some viewers might consider too edgy. But I'd always tell him that just about nothing would strike me as too edgy. But I did a couple of times wonder out loud why he was still doing his monologue basically the same way Johnny had, from mid-stage, with the audience distanced from him in raised seats, like the bleachers in Yankee Stadium. I had seen Jay performing in his usual Sunday night location, the Comedy and Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, and he seemed way more effective there, closer to the audience, who was sitting in seats right at his level. Jay never responded to that observation, but a couple of years into his run, he did a week of shows in New York from the Saturday Night Live studio. That stage was closer to the audience. The week went so well that Jay's great producer, Debbie Vickers, had NBC redo his stage in Burbank to bring the audience down adjacent to the little platform they built for his monologue. Jay started winning just about that time. I'm not taking credit. Maybe I planted a tiny seed, but it was really the experience in New York that convinced him. Jay was a classic club comic. He needed to play to his strengths. Talking to guests was not one of Leno's strengths, not one of Letterman's either early on. Both guys got better, Dave especially, but with increasing competition, late-night guest booking became far more important and far more intense. Some single guests, Howard Stern, for example, could lift the ratings for one night. But there was usually a formula. The A guest, the B guest, the music act. Dick Cavett was the rare host exception who would often commit his entire show, when it was 90 minutes long, to one single guest. One of the great things about it was you could relax because you knew you had plenty of time. And to do the four-guest show, you were always a little antsy because you knew you weren't going to get to their favorite story or whatever. And often, a guest who was good at the beginning of their 90-minute show got better and better. It was a high-risk, high-reward strategy. You could wind up talking for a whole show to a Beatle famous for his dour reticence. One of the Beatles, who was it? Oh, George. Somebody said, you're going to try to do a show for 90 minutes with George. Good luck. <laughs> and he, he was a little uncolorful at the beginning, but he got better and better. When I pointed out to him halfway through that he was in a chair that was occupied by Yoko Ono a week ago, and he was loosened up enough to jump up and brush off his pants. And, <laughs> and Cavett, unlike Carson, would also occasionally fly the flag of his personal opinions, as he did on a night when a racist governor of Georgia, Lester Maddox, walked off the show after Cavett suggested his followers were bigots. But late-night hosts generally followed Carson's lead. Comment on the news skewer whoever was in office, 
keep your own views muted. We'll talk about how the idea of full satire of the news expanded the way late-night shows are made and the way audiences reacted to them when we come back to Behind the Desk after another short message. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. When Jon Stewart took over The Daily Show in 1999, he still sat at a desk and guests still arrived mid-episode. But Jon steered the show toward much harder news satire. That alone put some different spin on the late-night form. First of all, it shrunk it to half an hour. It also allowed hosts to be accepted as opening their shows sitting at a desk. As you know, we went to Iraq, and for one reason only. It wasn't about weapons of mass destruction or, or 9-11. Once those reasons were found to be unsupported by reality. It was about America. It was about what happens when one country loves another country very much. And that country then deposits his democracy seed. Typically laser-guided. Of course John was behind a desk. He was a news anchor. That was to be expected. That expectation carried over to a broadcast network when Seth Meyers took over NBC's Late Night from Jimmy Fallon. Seth started his run doing his monologue standing at center stage, the traditional position. It didn't work for him until he moved to sitting at the desk. Why? Because viewers associated him with his own faux newscast, Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. Again, a host playing to his strengths. Jon Stewart's strengths as a comic news anchor were so effective, many young viewers started to regard the show as their legitimate news source. It's funny because Jon was always, um, yeah, he was like, we are a comedy show, we're not a news show. And really it is, and it still is, comedy first. Jen Flans has been a writer and an executive producer on The Daily Show when it was hosted by Jon Stewart, and now when it's hosted by Trevor Noah. We have never put something out, at least on purpose, that was fake news, you know, or false information. It's all grounded in reality. I think that I used to be more on the side of like, no, we're just a comedy show. Like, don't listen to us over here. We're just making jokes. And now I don't mind as much when people say, oh, I got my news from The Daily Show. Gradually, as events in the news got crazier, Stewart began injecting something else into late-night comedy. Point of view. John let the audience know how enraged he was with figures like Dick Cheney and Donald Trump, and how elated he was with the election of Barack Obama. But if point of view was the newest element in late-night, the double-reverse backflip point of view was an all-time innovation. 
I write a check from my super PAC to my 501c4 to my second secret 501c4, and because I sent a letter along the way that said, here's what I want you two guys to do with it, neither I nor me nor me is responsible <laughs> for what happens with the money. That's right. I love America. <laughs> Stephen Colbert, on his Colbert Rapport, began doing a whole show as a sketch character. He was offering bogus views that were the opposite of his own and making it work. I acknowledged thinking it was daring and hilarious and that he'd have to abandon the character after about six months. Colbert did it for nine years. Talk about playing to strengths. I feel like a lot of times executives or stuff, they, they only feel like audiences can take a very little, but I, I just disagree. Allison Silverman was first head writer and then executive producer of The Rapport. She loved the wild ride of that show. Every time I've seen something take a real, you know, really push something, I, I feel like it's succeeded. Other elements of the late night format that seemed locked in for perpetuity, or at least before a pandemic, start with the studio audience. Arsenio Hall thrived on the energy and unpredictability of his live audience. He was unafraid to work off of the occasional volatility of that audience. And he liked being the outspoken non-Carson. I'm sorry, why don't I have any gay guests on my show? Well, there are a lot of gay guests who really don't like to talk about their sexual preference, so we don't know whether they're gay or not. Now... This ain't Johnny. I ain't gonna run from it. I'm gonna deal with it. The spontaneous laughter of real people was a host's mainline stimulant. Jimmy Kimmel initially wanted the audience extra stimulated. I remember David Letterman was very amused by that idea uh, when I went on his show to promote the show. <laughs> he was very tickled by the idea that we had a, an open bar for the audience. But we were coming off the man show, and truth be told, we had a bar in our lobby, and it was a very big bar, and we thought, why not use this bar? And why not make this show fun for the audience instead of having them line up like livestock? Let's let's make this a, you know, kind of a, a fun experience in the same way you, you go to a Broadway show and you get a glass of wine. And it all seemed great until the Disney executive showed up and uh, a woman who was in our audience vomited during our first show. Uh, she threw up. Our warm-up guy grabbed her and kind of carried her out and everybody saw it. And the next day, the bar was closed. <laughs> it was a great bar, though. A last fundamental, the suit and tie. Usually something elegant with a designer label. Again, Letterman shook up the formula, appearing in a sports coat, khaki pants, and sneakers during his NBC run. But he was in the elegant designer suit when he moved up to the big room, 1135, on CBS. During her late-night tenure, Joan Rivers lived up to the higher fashion expectations for a female host by wearing spangly dresses and tops, often by designers like Oscar de la Renta, body by Oscar Mayer, went her follow-up joke. Cue rimshot. Jimmy Kimmel thought his working guy image was more appropriately signaled in a jacket with shirt and no tie, 
and with the rim of his white undershirt showing. ABC had misgivings. Yeah, I, I wore a T-shirt poking through um, every night for, I think, a couple of years. And ABC very much wanted me to wear a tie. And so I couldn't wear a tie because they wanted me to. I have this like kind of instinct about negotiation in some way. And I knew that a lot of the executives of ABC felt the problem with, with the show was that I was not wearing a tie. So I couldn't, I couldn't start wearing a tie because they would then see that that had nothing to do with the problems with the show, that there were much, much bigger problems than my wardrobe. So I held out as long as I could until I felt they were at a, uh, a low moment with me and I started wearing a tie and they were so happy. <laughs> it distracted them for like a good eight months. When I talked with the hosts, Desus and Mero, we reviewed many of the familiar elements of the format and how they always seem to reemerge even amidst all of the cultural alterations. You had a desk, sometimes you didn't have a desk. And you do have guests, and you do have sort of an opening comedy bit that you do. You do some sketches. But did you have a thought about, let's, let's bring some of the traditions of late night in here, but let's make it our own? Yeah, when we first started, it was basically a deconstructed late night show. We had no yeah. guests. Uh, we had no code. Like, we just start filming. And yeah. there was like no, it was just off the top of our domes. You know, we've become, and that was necessary at the time because we had to stand out in late night, you know, in a world where the other guests, the other hosts don't look like us, they don't talk like us. And the guests they had were not guests that they'd have. So, you know, once we established ourselves, our name and our brand, now we're starting to have some of the more traditional elements of late night in our show. You'll see it like, you know, like... <laughs> One thing, like, we're dressing better. That's one thing. Because uh, on the other show, we were just wearing clothes from our house. And in some of yeah. the initial episodes, you can see oxtail gravy on one of my shirts. Yes. We have the desk. It's not like the old desk where it was, like, super small and it was, like, right there on people. But, you know, it's a little bigger. There's some space there. That's always... We love sitting down with the audience, or with the guests right there. And now we're adding... They're not necessarily traditional late night things, but maybe they used to be traditional things. Like if you look on our, you know, shout out to our studio, whenever we return to it, the little bodega setup we have on it. You know, like you look on other late night shows, they don't have anything like that. You don't see anyone trying to remake, you know, look, there's not Nantucket behind somebody trying to get a little, you know, Cape Cod going. <laughs> Even as late night shows are increasingly watched in different ways, one other essential element remains. The daily immediacy of Let's put on a show. Andy Richter, who had left late night for the sitcom world, missed that. And he wanted back in. For how long? That's another question. It's more inspirational than, than just kind of like, you yes. know, the sitcom world that's kind of things about themselves. But also, nobody gets in your way. I mean, I can think of stuff on the drive to work, and it's on TV that night. Yeah. And there's not a lot of kind of corporate interference no. in there. Not once you're established. Not once, once you're established. There was plenty of corporate yeah. interference yeah. when they didn't think you were good. Right, right. But if the ratings are good, they just, everything, right. everybody goes on happily. And, and depending on the personality of the show, if it's a show that lines up with your sensibilities, you're going to get a lot better comedy. Is there a long-term future for the format? Oh, boy, I'm terrible at these because I don't know anything about, you know, I mean, yes. it's cheap and you can get really famous people to be on it. And that, that'll keep it going. Yeah. That'll keep it going. And, it, and as long as there will be funny, charming, good-looking people 
to put on TV or to put on the computer screen or to put on whatever. Yeah, it'll keep going. I think we can count on the good-looking people, at least if they have something to sell. You can wrap it in some good jokes and comedy bits, and you've got yourselves a show. And one that's probably going to look very familiar. And maybe still not cost too much. Union scale for a guest is up from $265.50 all the way to 480 bucks. Here's Jimmy Kimmel. Of course, you think like, well, what I'm going to do is going to be a departure from that. And I'm going to make I'm going to make my show different. And you can do that, and some people will be successful with that, but you're not doing a late-night talk show. You're doing something else. Be sure to listen and follow Behind the Desk, the story of late night, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to know what you think. Behind the Desk, the story of late night, is a production of CNN Audio and CNN Original Series. It's executive produced by me, Bill Carter, as well as Johnny Kalangas, David Brady, and Kate Harrison Carmen. Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. For CNN Original Series, special thanks to Molly Harrington and Kira Bowden Gologorski. The producers are Mark Malkoff and Johnny Kalangas. Our editor is Nick Pruer, and our engineer is Neil McDonald. Matt McClellan is our line producer. Special thanks to Amy Antellis, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, John Ehler, and of course, to all the great people who share their experiences and insights with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.